Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Today on Superheroes of Science, we are pleased to welcome Matthew Huber, the David E. Ross Director for the Purdue Institute for a Sustainable Future, and um, Professor here in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences. Well, it's so, a pleasure to be here. Yes. Should we get that whole title right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot of titles. It's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> you might be one of the few people who have a longer title than me. <laughs> I like that. The, well, let's, let's start with the... Uh, Center for Sustainable uh, for, for a Sustainable Future. For a sustainable yeah. The Institute for a Sustainable Institute. Future. Yes. See, I'm not getting it right. You got it right to be on it. What does that does that mean? Yeah, so uh, I think that we all want to live in a better world where people have clean drinking water and healthy food and live a long time and are economically uh, in good shape and have clean air the, to breathe. And that's really what sustainability is about, is delivering those to people. And uh, the Institute for Sustainable Future is about making that happen. So it's a transdisciplinary institute, operates all across campus, across all the departments and all of the colleges. And we are aiming to bring solutions for a better world. Now, I, I hear of, of well, institutes, centers, groups, all these different things. And I'm clumping together a little bit. Uh, but I, I guess I've always wondered what the heck do they really do? And so your, your goal is to make a better world for all of us. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That sounds great. But what do people really do? It's like you're working towards that, but it's oftentimes I think we wonder outside of those, we wonder what, what is it they really do? Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, that's a good question. I think in general, people wonder what professors do, um, <laughs> which is, which is a, you know, always a good place to start. So, you know, we are typically engaged in research uh, as well as in teaching and in uh, engagement with communities. Um, so, you know, broadly speaking, an institute like mine uh, really draws on the strengths and the passion of the faculty for doing what they already do. So they're already doing research, they're already teaching, they're already engaged with communities. And so what we think about, um, you know, in terms of our mission is getting them beyond what they would normally be doing within their own, own department. So, uh, you know, if you have a, a research uh, uh, you know, somebody, a faculty member doing research in their area is in hurricanes, let's say, and let's mm -hmm. say they're the world's expert in hurricanes. Well, that's, that's great. But if we need to think about how can we make Indiana more resilient to, um, storms in general, including say flooding or ice storms or winter storms or heat waves, we might bring in together somebody with a background in hurricanes and somebody with a big background in uh, the regional weather of the Midwest and get them together with somebody who makes better concrete and somebody who works on the logistics of uh, trucks moving along our highways and somebody who's thinking about dams and somebody who's thinking about water quality and somebody who's thinking about how communities respond to natural disasters and put them in a room and say, 
Well, what are the threats that are facing us in the future? How do we make our state, our region, our country more resilient to the threats that are facing us? And what kind of solutions might we build out to make that happen? So it could be um, leading to improvements in building codes, new technologies. Sometimes it's just a matter of better information for people so that they're better prepared. So we, we aim to uh, take different kinds of people on campus and bring them together and, and make solutions happen. Sounds like a lot of coordination and, and timing and a lot of things in that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm kind of lucky because in my job, what I get to do is help people. So I get to help faculty work together. That, that's actually my main job. Sometimes people think, well, sustainability is a big thing. How could you be an expert on that? I can't be an expert on all aspects of sustainability. So what I can do is say, well, I'm not an expert in that, but I know five people who are. But the problem is they're in four different departments and they don't talk to each other. Right. So how do we bring them together? How do we bring their postdocs in? How do we bring their graduate students, their undergraduate researchers? How do we get all of them talking and working together and maybe thinking about things in a new way? It is. We've both been in higher education for a while, mm -hmm. and uh, it seems to me when I, well, I'll say we, because we got here about the same time, mm -hmm. I think Purdue, and it seems like things used to be more, I want to say, siloed. Mm -hmm. And so people did their research in that area, they focused on that, and nothing really outside of that mattered. But it looks like things are going more towards, and especially for institutes such as what you're at, is looking at that bigger picture. Mm -hmm. It's not just collaboration. It seems like we're trying to solve bigger problems and pulling the experts together to solve those bigger problems. Is that the future of science? Yeah, I think so. So uh, I got here in, in 2003 uh, in the Jishki era. And at the time, there was a big push to make Purdue interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. So bring, you know, creating uh, what was then known as Discovery Park, now Discovery Park District. Um, a lot of uh, cross-college hiring initiatives and trying to bring in people who could work together. And we were, we were successful at that. That was actually, um, we're, we're still reaping the benefits of that investment from 20 years ago. But it's not just enough to have different kinds of people working together. You, you then have to say, well, you know, maybe we'll have atmospheric scientists work with engineer to design, uh, you know, better better ways of routing rain during a flood. That's great. But what about the social scientists? What about the companies that will actually roll out the solution? Don't we need to be thinking about public-private partnerships? Don't we need to be thinking about taking fundamental science and translating it into products? Don't we need to think about the implications for products for society? Don't we need to be involving people who uh, are you know on the streets in the decision making at the beginning so that we make sure that whatever solutions we deploy are things that people actually want and will use. So I think that's how the science has grown is not just talking together and, and thinking about what we might do together, but really thinking about you know end-to-end -end solutions that are developed and deployed over decades. And that's a different kind of science, different kinds of technology. Now, you're, I want to say by trade, a climate scientist, correct? 
Is that, that, that the fair way? To yeah, well, just put you in. Yeah, right? no, it, it's a trade. Um, <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. You know, uh, you know, I I earn less money than my plumber does, uh, and I have I have uh, a lot of respect for my plumber because you know he, well, he's a very you know I don't know if you, you know, being a plumber is a hard job, but he's like six foot eight. <laughs> and and he's a plumber, so that you know that's that's an interesting situation. Yeah. yeah so, uh, but he's he's excellent, right? So he spent decades learning his craft, mm-hmm. and that's what he's really really good at. And so I, I have a lot of respect for people in the trades. And so my trade um, is climate modeling. So I started doing that uh, as a graduate student, so almost about twenty five years ago. Um, and that's taking essentially um, uh, codes and embody physics and putting them on a computer and running very big computers for very long periods of time. The climate models I use are developed at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and are codes that have been used and developed by the community now for decades. So, you know, I'm happy to be in that community. So, and here's a discussion we were having in a meeting yesterday. The importance of understanding how to code as a part of science. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's more and more important, in your opinion, that uh, scientists have to understand some coding language? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I guess the way to think about it is that typically we would say math is the language of science. And and that's true, but math by itself just kind of sits on a page. (laughs) Um, You have to do something with the math. And what we we typically do with the math is put it onto a computer and then generate predictions about what's going to happen next. And so whether you're doing uh, predictive modeling for what's going to happen in the future or data-driven modeling where you're trying to take data inputs and run it through some code and say, well, what's happening right now or, or in the very near future? Uh, all of that, if you don't know how to code, it's like not knowing a language. It's just not being able to, to translate ideas into something that, that actually does something. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And it seems like the world is data science now. Everything is, literally everything, from advertising to high-level research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are swimming perennially in, in, in data, and everything we do leads a, a data trail. We eat data in the morning, and, and <laughs> we excrete data all day long. So uh, it's kind of a big cycle of, of data. So I, I think of myself, um, at least one of the hats that I wear is, is as a data scientist and a computational scientist. And that's one of the initiatives we want to move ahead with uh, uh, the Institute for Sustainable Future is uh, kind of uh, Purdue computes sustainability, and the, the thinking there is that Purdue is, is moving in the direction of having major computing, uh, semiconductor, data-oriented initiatives, um, and in the field of sustainability science, in, in the broad sense, we do that all the time. Plus, there's the sustainability of semiconductors themselves. You you can't make that. You can't make computers without critical materials. Mm-hmm. Critical materials, well, that's geology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you have to go and find that stuff. And you can't make them without water. Well, that's hydrology and hydrogeology and engineering. So you can't do any of the things. You can't generate the data. You can't analyze the data unless you have people on the ground finding the raw materials and, and making these things. So there's a whole sustainability of computing as well. 
So that's an area I think that uh, you know, Earth atmospheric and planetary sciences has a lot to contribute to. Is how do we build better computers? It's not just engineering; it's the materials and the fabrication. As someone who's leading these these initiatives, how in the world do you get people? Like, say, I'm a geologist. If I understand my rocks, geomorphology, I understand how things have changed, how it changes over time, and uh, how the landscape maybe changes. How would you talk someone like me into going out of that comfort zone and collaborating to look at, no, we want to look at you know sustainable technology. We need your expertise in this. How do you approach people and, and help them see that bigger picture? Well, you always start off with common ground and, and what what somebody knows and where they're coming from. I mean, the thing about earth scientists just as a group, they tend to be systems thinkers. And systems thinkers, you know, they're, they're used to saying, I don't necessarily know all the details about everything, but maybe I don't need to. I'm looking at how the system behaved and I accept the fact there's unknowns, but I can see if I have this input, I get that output on a repeated basis. And geomorphology would be a classic example of that. Like you may not understand exactly the detail of how you know every glacier eroded out every glacial valley, but you know basically glaciers lead to U-shaped valleys. Um, so you know I, I think that uh, earth sciences is a great background because it leads you to think about systems and how they link together. And we live in a world of systems. They may be data systems. They may be computational systems. They may be social uh, economic systems, but you know, actually earth science is a great background for doing that. And, you know, specifically to your example, I could go to like, well, what are, what are chips made out of? Well, chips are made of, of um, silicon. Well, where does that come from? Well, it's sandstone. So what's the major source of that? Oh, well, you know, not far away from here, we have the St. Peter sandstone, which is kind of the most clean and pure sandstone on Earth. And it's a couple hundred million years old, you know, giant inland, inland sea type thing that was laying down and, you know, it's ultra pure and it doesn't have a whole lot of contaminants. So you can just take it and make chips with it. So this is something that, you know, geological processes created this sandstone hundreds of millions of years ago. And then glaciers came in and covered it up 10 meters of, of glacial till. But it's just sitting there as an economic resource that's then mined and turned into chips. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of amazing. You can go back from you know, basically geomorphological things that were happening in deep time and say, well, we couldn't build chips without this stuff. So, you know, you, you can always bring it full circle. Fair enough. I like that. We live in an integrated system. <laughs> what incentive are the, uh, for them to collaborate? Is it they're going to have more research opportunities, thus they keep their jobs and be able to progress their careers? Is that the main incentive to keep people? Yeah, well, yeah, finding incentives for people is, is always a challenge in academia because um, with the exception of untenured professors, most people, they have a job for life. Yeah. And... Um, and you know, frankly, it's not money or what most people would think of as uh, of as success that drives people in academia. It is some uh, deep curiosity they have, some deep passion that they have, which may not always be explicable to other people. So you have to find that for somebody. So some people they just really like robots. They, I mean, you know, 
if they had a chance, they would just be sitting in a room playing with robots all day. But they're lucky because they got to be a professor of robotics. And, and so they may be looking for, wow, I could send robots to other planets for space probes. I could send, you know, robots into drains to study the movement of fluids within drain pipes. I could send robots into people and study the interactions going on inside of, of, a, of a human gut or maybe into a cow's gut to understand the production of methane in there. So I think that for just about everybody, you have to find out why they do things and then kind of pull on that string and it and I like to think of my job as involving uh, uh, I have just like a, a bag full of a bunch of little carrots I have no sticks I can't I can't fire anybody I can barely even hire anybody all I can do is say here's something that I know that you want to do and I'm going to give you a little bit of an incentive it could be money to bring people together and have pizza once a month I mean it, it that that in that sense, it's easy to incentivize faculty because we were all graduate students. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we worked for pizza, right? Like, you know, if, you, if you if you give us a little bit of Coke, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little soda over here, a little pizza over here, we're, we're good to go. So, um, yeah, I have very small carrots. And ideally, I don't have to do too much convincing because if you present people with a good idea or they present me with a good idea, it's a no-brainer. I say, well, how can I help make that happen? And then I just try and find the resources to do that. And typically, it's not as much as you might think. Were you going to ask something? No. All right. No. Well, I, I am. It's all, totally off topic, too. But it's something you hit. It's uh, kind of triggered in my head. Uh, because I know a lot of people who aren't don't understand how tenure works mm -hmm. for a faculty. Yeah. And they just heard you say, well, yeah, a teaching professor has a child for life. They don't have to worry about anything. And so uh, how does a person actually get tenure? It's not just that, oh, they've been around long enough. They get this and they don't mm -hmm. have to worry about anything. So there is a lot of work and not everyone makes it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, would you be willing to go ahead and explain how does a, like a tenure, how does a person do tenure at a research at R1 institution like this? Yeah, absolutely. So the tenure process, somebody comes in uh, typically out of graduate school or maybe they were a, a postdoctoral fellow for a number of years and they come in and it's a lot like being a startup in a company. So you come into a department and you're expected to start a successful research program as well as teach, as well as be a good departmental citizen and a good mentor to graduate students. It's quite a job, but it's not that much different than starting your own company. You're essentially given X number of dollars, you're given a lab, you're given a support facility to help you do your science, and then you're expected to build a group, write grants, publish papers, um, make the necessary uh, connections so that you have a network that you can rely on to help you get your science done. And then it's just uh, four to six years of 12-hour days, six days a week to make it happen. And at the end of that, it's a thumbs up or thumbs down decision about whether you stay. And that system is very good um, at uh, encouraging you know, really the people who can put in the effort and also who can make advances in a relatively short amount of time. And six years, I don't know whether six years sounds like a long time or a short time to people. For an academic, six years is a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's just enough time to come in and have, you know, 
maybe one one cadre of graduate students mm -hmm. graduate. You might come in, hire a graduate student or two, and just as you go up for tenure, they might actually graduate. Um, and it's time for one or two grants to have been successfully funded. And I know for the work that I do, between conception of an idea, getting a proposal funded, bringing on a graduate student or a postdoc, writing the papers and seeing them published is about five years. Okay. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite the effort. But the thing is, once you have tenure, at least once you've developed that kind of base, then um, it grows. And that's part of what uh, the Institute exists to, to help people do is be an incubator. You know, if, if you think about these things as startups, uh, you know, tenure track faculty is, is starting up a little company and then maybe it starts growing. Um, one of the jobs of the Institute is to say, you know, you've got a great mom and pop shop. You're very successful. You're doing well. But how do I help you grow that into like a major entity and go from four employees to 50 employees. So that's, that's really what we're, we're trying to do ultimately is grow these large transdisciplinary teams and take them from a couple of mom and pop shops, get them to work together. And now you have something that's, you know, more substantial and can scale up. You don't want to be a bakery and then suddenly become successful. Because if there's four employees and now everybody wants your baked goods at the exact same time, you'll just have a bunch of unhappy customers, right? So yeah. we've got to be able to take people who really have a niche product, mm -hmm. right? So they have been in graduate school for four to ten years, um, and they have a postdoc, and then they, they start this mom-and-pop company, uh, uh, which is their, their tenure phase. And then once they're tenured, you know, it's like, we want you to grow. We want you to expand. We want you to do new things. And so that's a large part of what we, what we try to do is incubate that. Well, that's cool. Uh, that's a great exploration. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my wife uh, spent a number of years working at Smitty Bread. So um, <laughs> I know all about what happens when a bakery becomes very successful. You know, get a lot of people who get burnt out working. Yeah. I have no doubt. It's actually bringing personal experience. That's awesome. But I, I do like that. I've always been impressed with the fact that as a, a assistant, associate professor, mm -hmm. you're there, you're proving that you can contribute to the knowledge of mankind. Mm -hmm. You're proving you can do science and you can do quality science and, and you can publish that science and get it out there mm -hmm. to be seen in the community and evaluated. I love that. It's it to me it would scare the heck out of me. I mean, because it's you you live you have your soul and everything you write, and then it's like you are being constantly judged. On it. so yeah, this is, this is true. I mean, it's actually it's, it's only after you've been doing it for a little bit that you realize, uh, like a lot of initially your stress is, can I get this paper published, and then realize afterwards your stress is oh my god the paper is published <laughs> now people are reading it yeah and now people all over the world can judge me that it's all down on pay i can't walk this back yeah, yeah. i can't yeah. say i didn't mean that no i spent four years doing this i can't say like there's something in there i yeah. didn't really mean <laughs> and if people think your idea is dumb or wrong they'll tell you in uh -huh. nice scientific uh -huh. right. polite language but then you realize there's many, many smart people in the world, and they are all out, because we're scientists, they're all out to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. 
And so that is the most nerve-wracking thing, actually, isn't... Uh, you, you, when you start, you think, oh, the nerve-wracking thing is getting published or getting a grant or, or getting tenure. And then you realize afterwards, no, it's what you do afterwards. Yeah. It's the consequences of that. that those, those are the real sources of stress. Uh, I, you know, I published a paper now, and so I published in 2010 on the importance of um, moist heat stress for planetary habitability. And, you know, it, it started off just as a theoretical paper, like, huh, so could it get so hot and so humid that, like, mammals couldn't survive? Just, I mean, literally just like a what-if question, like, yeah. you're just sitting around drinking beers and it's just like, what if, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's basically the great thing about being a scientist. You can ask a what if question and rather than just saying, huh, nobody knows, you can now, you know, spend a couple <laughs> yeah. of years and try and answer it. Um, so that's what my colleague Steve, Steve Sherwood and I did. I, I gave a talk saying the world used to be a lot hotter and he asked that question. Well, could it, did it and could it get so hot that mammals don't, don't survive? And, and then we worked on it. Um, and we uh, wrote a paper. We thought it was pretty good, and you know, we pushed for it. And, you know, got rejected at one journal, got submitted to another, and got published. And initially, you know, it was all about getting the paper published. And then it was like, oh God, we wrote a really scary and depressing paper. What if we're right? No. <laughs> right? Which actually hadn't really occurred to me because the conclusion of the paper was, yeah, it could get so hot that 50% that of all mammals die. And um, and we did it, you know, just like, what if? Uh -huh. And then we published a paper, and then it was like, oh, wait, this has implications for real people, huh? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that a whole lot before publishing the paper. I really hope we're we're right, but I also hope that we're wrong, right? You know, yeah, as yeah, a scientist, yeah. you don't yeah. want to publish anything incorrect. You want to realize every, half the world's going to die. Yeah, yeah, you know, you 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 want to know that your math was right and your physics was right. <laughs> right. But then at the end of the day, you don't like the conclusion, and then you mm -hmm. you know then you sit there and you say, huh, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, now I'm. Uh, now I'm a little depressed. Um, yeah, so so sometimes, you know, it's actually the success. You know, it's the dog who catches the car driving by that, yeah. you know, is like, huh, wow. So that, that I, I think, oftentimes is a bit of a, uh, maybe a letdown for people. They get tenure, and then they're like, really? I've, I've literally worked for like 10 years of my life, and I finally got here, and I'm like, is this all there is? And then you start looking at full you know, full professor. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then that's the next hill you have to climb. That, that's the thing is people who make it through the academic enterprise are all people who are always thinking about what's that next hill they have to climb. They, they tend not to coast until they hit a certain age. That's some of the coast. <laughs> we have out any job, though. <laughs> but but the, exactly, the everyone have been there long enough. They're they're efficient. They can get yeah. what yeah. has to be done done. Yeah, and they kind of glide through a lot of times. Yeah, then others has been there forever. They just don't stop. Yeah, and it just it's hard to keep up. Yeah, I, I I'm interacting with one, a senior professor right now, and and you know, man, he has the energy of four assistant professors. You know, it's like oh yeah. gosh, what. You could take a break, dude. You're, yeah. you know, you're a distinguished <laughs> professor. You you can calm down. But graduate school, that whole process selects for people who they really just can't stop because it's it's a real passion of theirs.
Uh, well, this, that, that's a direction I didn't think we'd end up going. Yeah, yeah. But I was curious. You said about the having tenure and stuff. I'm like, I always wonder. You know, uh -huh. I, mean, I live it, and so I know yeah. a lot. But most people don't. Yeah. And so I think it's something a lot of people kind of wonder what in the world's really going on there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Well, it is a, it is a gift, and it's a privilege, and and therefore you really need to have a process that that tends to winnow people out, so you're not giving this privilege out to you know people who are going to abuse it. And that, that is why it is a very challenging process. And I think a lot of people, you know, maybe if they look at discussions of this on social media, they'll think, oh, God, why is it such a harsh process? But you have to look at it like I am paid by the state. I am paid yeah. as mm -hmm. by taxpayers and given uh, this privilege of, of it basically, you know, being a, a job that, you know, I can, I can uh, go for a long period of time. Um, and you have to take that very seriously. And uh, you know the way I look at it, that's, a, that, that's part of why I'm director of this institute, is it's part of my land-grant mission. Mm -hmm. It's part of the university's land-grant mission that I'm, that I'm contributing to. When I was doing what was climate like 100 million years ago, uh, that's still fundamental science, but it's a little bit less kind of returning value and, and, and paying people back for the privilege that I'm given. Um, but as director of an institute that's focusing more on um, helping to translate science into solutions, yeah. um, that's that's how I, I pay it back. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. I don't stop doing my fundamental science. I'm still going to... Oh, so you're still doing yeah. research? Yeah, right? you know, I'm, I'm still yeah. doing it. Um, but it, uh, you know, like I was saying before, you know, you, you, maybe you, you start your mom and pop shop and you're doing it and we want you to do other things too, but that doesn't mean you should ever stop yeah. doing that thing that you were really good at, right? You should, you should, you should keep doing it. You should just add more things to your portfolio. So that's, that's what I've done. And that's one of the things that we encourage people to do in the Institute is take what they're doing. You're awesome at it, but you know what? You've got, you set this up. It can kind of run itself. Let's let's take your entrepreneurial instinct, your drive, your intelligence, and let's now say, what are two other things that you might do? And for the right faculty member, they're ready for that. You know, mm -hmm. so not everybody is right, and you have to meet people where they are. You can't. So I can tell you when we're talking about incentives, what does not work? What does not work is uh, some upper level administrator or a dean or a department head saying everyone needs to do. Everyone needs to write big proposals. Yeah. Um, yeah, what you get is a bunch of low quality effort. Right. You know, what you have to do is say, you're all smart, you're all driven, you know that it'll be good for society, good for the university if we write large proposals. But how do we actually make that happen? How do we make that happen naturally? You can't just say, do it. You have to uh, take some time and develop relationships. So that's the perspective that I've taken is, you can't just throw together teams of people who don't know each other, don't necessarily respect each other, because they come from different disciplines, they speak mm -hmm. different languages, scientific languages. Um, so you have to bring them together, and you have to take the time to, to get to know them. And that can take years. It's not a quick yeah. process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you want to bring social scientists together with engineers, to, together with people from agronomy. Like, like it's it takes time. Yeah. But for solving the problems that we need to solve as a society, we absolutely have to have that kind of knowledge of each other and ability to work together. 
So um, that's what we do. We, we take the time. So we build research communities, which are all about people getting to know people. And then we have special initiatives where once some ideas emerge from that getting to know you process, then we can fund the development of that idea to something that might scale up. And not everything is going to make it. So some ideas, you provide some seed funding or some ability to generate preliminary results or grow, and not everything pans out. So there's a certain amount of risk, and we accept that. But then some ideas emerge from that process as uh, potentially very successful. So they're already, you know, that team may be bringing in millions of dollars in grants, having large groups, um, generating fantastic science, deploying solutions for the real world. And then we say, okay, maybe you can be like a national center for the X, Y, or Z. Maybe this is something that now is not just competitive within Purdue or regionally. Maybe this is something that is competitive nationally and internationally. And so then we try and make the necessary investment funded through the, the uh, executive vice president for research office, take that and see if we can bring that to the next level, help them scale up for that kind of national or international scale sector level proposal effort. I love that you talk about that it takes time to build those relationships because I think from the outside, you're thinking, well, that makes sense, right? They, they have engineers, they have social scientists, right. they have they should be working together. But then realistically speaking, you can't just force that to happen. You're yeah. exact, I mean, I love how you explain that. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and, that, and that's, you know, I, this is obvious to some people from the beginning, but not for everybody. And it certainly took me time to get to know this, but it is really all about, about the people. Um, and, and, and by people, it's not just faculty, it's students, it's really career researchers of various sorts and it's staff, right? Like staff are in many ways, the institutional memory and the glue, right? Because administrators, they come and go, you have department heads become deans who become provosts and then leave, right? You know, so you have, you have this whole kind of chain of being and it typically leads to people, um, leaving where they are and moving on to the next phase. Um, and oftentimes the people who actually know how to get things done and do it uh, are the staff. And they oftentimes are the ones who uh, are not featured in university publications, campaigns, yeah. or in the raise uh, uh, merit pool, um, but they should be. So I, I sit on the uh, external review committee of various departments and uh, institutes uh, outside of Purdue. And that's the point I always try and make is it's not just about cluster hires and bringing in new faculty. And it isn't just about growing your endowment. The, the fact of the matter is a lot of what every, everything that gets done is done by staff. So what are you doing to protect your staff, to grow them professionally, keep them happy? Um, which is all goes in the heading of, I think that people are really important in this process and you have to deal with people as people and, and not just units of growth or income. Right. Yes. It's, it's easy apparently to overlook. Yeah. Based on being here a long time and seeing and watching. And yeah. Like, hmm. Well, and, and the flip side to that is you can't have a system that works only because there's one person who has the knowledge. Yes. Right. I mean, so that's the, the flip side to that is people and individuals matter. But if you have a system that doesn't work, 
and it only works because there's that one person who knows how to do things, that's not a system that's sustainable. So you need to have systems that um, you're constantly propagating knowledge from people to the rest of the system and you have redundancy, which, uh, you know, from a business perspective, redundancy is bad. It's actually the word we use, making people redundant to get rid of them, right? But redundancy and the ability to have failover is what is necessary in a constantly evolving system. If you want, so I'm now I'm speaking the language resilience, which is uh, part and parcel of sustainability, right? So if you want to have an institution be resilient, you have to have those things. You have to have a certain amount of strong, net, strong networking so people know who to talk to, no single points of failure. So if you take one person out of it, everything stops working. You can't have that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's very important for departments, colleges, institutes, universities to really carefully consider that. And sometimes that just involves um, linking together two networks because one network might have a person who is a single point of failure, but there's actually another network over here. And, you know, there's a, an analogous person in another institution. And if they were working together, you would no longer have a single point yeah. of failure. Right. So um, this is the sort of thing that I actually spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about because I'm thinking across departments and across colleges. So I'm not just thinking about the role that one person plays in a college or a department. I'm thinking about the fact that now that I've met with everybody, I know there's 10 different people who play that role. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't they talk? Shouldn't, shouldn't they share their experience? Shouldn't there be a central place where that information is put so that if one of them leaves or retires or gets another job, that that knowledge is kept? And, um, yeah, so we, we actually, the Institute are spending a lot of our time thinking about that, how to make things as a system work better. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's why we, there's always the two of us that yeah. do a project. Right. Yeah. yeah. And if, if I'm, my kid's sick, I gotta be gone a day. Yeah. I don't have to worry about it. I know she's got it. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. same with her. Yeah. yeah. She knows, yeah. oh, that program's still going to run fine. Yeah. Where in the past... We've canceled big programs yeah. because a person has not been able to do it. Uh, I was sick or something. I'm like, I can't, you know, run a fever, right. can't leave home. Yeah. You know, yeah. and all of a sudden, an entire program shut down for a day. Right. And yeah. It, 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 was, it was inefficient and stressful. Or now it might still be stressful, <laughs> but at least we know that yeah, yeah. someone else can. And so we've yeah. worked on that even in our little the part of the world. world. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's it, we saw the importance of that, yeah. and uh, many people have reaped the benefit yeah. of that, yeah. being yeah. able to keep the programs going. Right. And if you think, I mean, COVID was a really good wake-up call, I think, globally for the importance of that, that a lot of things were cut so lean, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the interest of efficiency. Uh, and, and there were real benefits to that. So, you know, just in time production, you know, the fact that you could have something be manufactured in China and three days later, you know, I have a new phone yeah. sitting on my, on my desk, right? You know, and, and I, I only configured on, on the computer three days ago and somehow, okay, all came here almost by magic. But then you realize, well, okay, I see the benefits to that, but you've opened yourself up for if there's any link in that chain that breaks, that the whole thing fails. Yeah. And that's, we're still still dealing with supply chain disruption 
you know, I go to restaurants and there's basic things that aren't on the menu, yeah. things that are made locally here in Indiana, but I can't get them at a restaurant because there's some part of the process that involves something coming from Germany and that it just isn't happening right now. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that COVID has really taught us is that we need to be building into our all of our plans resilience and the fact that if you have a long chain of things that all have to happen perfectly for things to work out, that doesn't always happen. So you have to build in resilience into the system to have it function over longer term terms. Mm -hmm. And when you start realizing that, it makes you rethink how everything is done, which that is the sustainability mindset. It's saying, we don't just want to optimize it for efficiency right now. We want to make sure it will continue to work when the lights go off and yeah. and when there is uh, an invasion in another country. We want to make sure that our energy supply locally continues to function when one country, one place invades another country somewhere else, right? Like it's thinking through all of the possible risks and threats and trying to make a system that works most of the time rather than just when things are good. So it's a tough road because it requires planning and forethought. Yeah. And you realize that some people don't actually like planning and forethought. They see it as a threat, right? And so, um, you know, it doesn't take a PhD to do planning and forethought, right? I mean, anybody who wants to can do it. But once you start thinking about it, you realize you have to start thinking about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And what seems simple might be complex now. Mm -hmm. So I, I try and deal with the complexity. I used to just say, simplify, simplify, simplify until it's a problem I can solve. And then you realize real world problems aren't like that. Right. And you have to deal with the complexity and, and also deal a little bit with failure because that means that part of what you're trying to solve can mm -hmm. so maybe 75% solution that works is better than a hundred percent solution that no one can, can deploy so, yeah. thank you for your time yes yeah well thank you I, I really appreciate this yeah. I appreciate this thank you for listening to this episode of science from the experts from Purdue University superheroes of science if you like this episode subscribe give us a positive view and share the love Boiler up hammer down